It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. Let's uh, start with prayer. Father, we submit this time to you and just ask that you would govern, that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide, and that you would prepare each of our hearts to receive and to understand. Lord, the, the ideas, the truths that are going to be imparted this morning are so critical. To me, there, it's such an intimate uh, message, and I desire it to be passed along well, but uh, this is something that needs to be spirit transferred. It is, it is a work of grace in each of our lives. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make the handoff. And this would be for your glory, honor, and praise. We love you. Amen. All right. Well, uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and by the way, before I even go into that, I should announce that there's a change of stage for anyone that is streaming this. This is the Set Apart Girl Conference uh, thing that is being set up behind me. So if it looks a little more girly than the message I'm giving, that's, that's why. Okay, I know I'm very... Does my shirt match with it, by the way? Did I pick this right? I was trying to coordinate all this. Now, it's not true, but uh, I do sort of feel, now that I think about what shirt I'm wearing, that it does have some similar colors. So all on purpose. Uh, but on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, it's usually Nathan Johnson that will... Uh, deliver like on Tuesdays, he does an expositional study on Ephesians, which has just been a great study. And then on Thursdays, uh, he's doing a the first phase is a a very quick Bible survey, so it's about a ten episode survey of the Bible. And then he's going to go into a more of a granular study of uh, of the Bible in a survey form. And so you'll notice that I'm not Nathan Johnson. I and so the reason is uh, Nathan was speaking in. Uh, Tennessee this week, so I'm filling in for him, but then he had uh, emergency apodectomy uh, surgery, and uh, he's laying in bed instead here in Windsor. So uh, wouldn't it be fun? We should have a field trip as an extension of Daily Thunder and go and visit Nathan. Uh, So that would be fun for him. He's probably listening in going, and he's like scrambling around trying to get ready real quick. But uh, so it's not Nathan today. Uh, Tuesday of this week and today... I'm doing a two-part series, a little mini-series uh, for us, called Spiritual Biography. And on, I have two parts. The first part was called The Idiot Preacher, and the second one is called The Radical Father. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But these are two dimensions. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of biography. Not just any biography. I love Christian biography, but even more so than that, I love missionary biographies. Those are my favorite. I love reading the stories of men and women who have had that movement of grace upon their soul and been stirred and awakened at a deep level to risk everything and leave and to go and to seek after lost souls. That just stirs me up. And so uh, in my life, I am... I'm sort of a composite of all sorts of things, not just two different factors, but there's things that I like about biography, and I like just seeing how individuals respond to the truth of God and how each life is so unique, and I, I like that. I'm fascinated by that, but I like the application of truth because it inspires me, and so when I see George Mueller and how he handled his prayer life and how he handled uh, resource and praying for resource for uh, for serving orphans, very deeply inspiring and stirring. And the same is true with like Hudson Taylor and his calling to China. 
I'm very fascinated by how the movements of their souls work. And so I could make a huge list. In fact, that would probably be a great resource that I could include with this, a whole bunch of great biographies uh, because there's so many good ones. But in this, I'm bringing out two different dimensions in my life very specifically to sort of inspire all of us because these are things that God desires to work in each one of us even though they are heightened, in, if you will, in my life. So if, if, if I was George Mueller up here talking, I might talk about uh, prayer and, and uh, financial provision. And that could be a, a huge theme in my life, which ironically it is, but I'm glad I'm not talking about that right now. That's, it's funny, when you're still alive and you're constantly going through the need for prayer and financial provision, you don't really want to always talk about it. You don't want to give ideas to God that this is the way it should always be, that you should always be short and needing more. But thank you, Lord, for the dependency that I have in that area. So uh, this will be a fun message, and I think a, a very intimate one for me, uh, of course, is, is, it's like a biography, but it's not just so that I can talk about my life, it's so that we can sort of see a, uh, the way that God works and the Spirit of God works in lives. So the two maneuvers of the Spirit of God, the making of the idiot preacher, is what I talked about on Tuesday, and then the making of a radical father. Uh, when I said this on Tuesday, I mentioned the fact that, I, first of all, I've struggled with the name Radical Father in this, and because I, you know, idiot preacher at least sounds like I'm putting myself down when I say it. Radical Father could sound like a positive. I'm not sure. Radical isn't always considered a positive. But it could be unusual. It could be strange. It could be bizarre. When people look at my life, uh, they, they try and figure me out. When they watch me walk into a Starbucks with six kids to sit down and play cards or something uh, and all get our drinks, and, uh, and it's like, no, that is made with almond milk. You know, it seems like whatever I do has to be a little odd and strange, okay? So all my kids are, and we went into Chick-fil-A last night, and I had the same fresh sense that we look very strange. Uh, we're that one family that needs that big table, and we fill it uh, completely. In fact, I have to stand because there's not even a chair there, so I'm standing around the table. And, that's, and then we're always the family that people will notice because of that. It's like, I was noticing your family. Yeah, I bet you were. And so, and there's part of me that I, I like making a statement as far as a Christian, but there's certain times you just sort of wish you didn't stand out, Right? And so there is a dimension to this that is, is what God does in all of us. We would prefer maybe to be a light under a bushel, but God's sort of like, hey, let's remove that bushel and let's shine that light. And so he'll do things in our life that cause it to stand out, to cause it to make a difference. And, you know, when God as a father was seeing our need, he was a radical father. He so loved that he gave his only begotten son. It is an extreme movement of soul. And so I want us to just be awakened to the fact that if this God lives in us, what is he willing to do for lost and dying souls around this world? And that's, that's why this message can be so important. So on Tuesday, I, I walked through this process of what I went through in becoming the idiot preacher. Uh, and... Eric, will you become an idiot for my sake? And then I asked all of you, I said, I just want you to ponder that. In other words, the, the initial response in our natural man is, no way. I do not want to be the idiot. I don't want to be deemed the fool. And yet that is a critical question for each one of us. And I introduced you guys to the Greek word idiotes. It's a fun word to say. Uh, seemingly unlearned, appearing unskilled, and lacking intelligence. Paul was willing to become idiotes. Are we? So in this message, as we talk about the radical father, uh, 
Here's the question. Eric, will you call my people your people? And so I want this question to begin to sink deeply into your soul because as a natural father, there's a lot of natural fathers out there, and they love their kids. They may not even know Christ, but they still love their kids. In other words, it's a very natural phenomenon. Uh, Mothers love their children. Dads love their children because they're their children. But that doesn't mean you love other people's children or you love the people that God loves. And that's the dimension of the radical father that we need to become vulnerable to. So Eric, will you call my people your people? That comes from a quote from William Booth, which I'll get to in just a second. Matthew 25. Now, uh, Matthew 25 has been a big deal in Leslie's and my life since the very beginning. I remember when I was, we were first married, I wrote a song called, in fact, it might have been before we were married, Matthew 2540. That was the name of the song back then. See, that's why I started naming things better. It's like, come on, that's not a very good name. Uh, but it's a, it's a great scripture, but not the best name for a song. And a very significant song in our life, in our marriage, because God started us with this burden for the weak, for the poor, for the least. And it's interesting, when we got into ministry, we started with that. It's like, let's go on the mission field. Let's go serve the weak, the least. But then our, we had this book that just like took off. We were being invited all over the world to not minister to the weak and to help the orphan and the widow, but to speak in large environments to a lot of people. And what's weird is it almost like displaced that heart that we had because we felt like we were doing this work, but we were no longer working for the least. We were now working for those that could buy a ticket, those that could buy books. And it was just a weird thing that we began to see in our life is it's very easy to start with a burden and then lose it. And so as a result, when I'm passing this off to you, I want you to understand that when the spirit wind blows into your soul and gives you a burden, it's precious. And it needs to be cared for. So Matthew 25, let's read uh, a portion of it at least. Then the king will say to those on his right hand. So he has separated out the goats to his left and the sheep to his right. He's going to say to those on the right hand, and these are the the good guys, the thumbs thumbs up guys. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, if you knew that Jesus was any of those, he was hungry and he came up to you. He's like, my name is Jesus Christ and uh, I'm hungry. You'd be like, oh, Jesus, I I, want to feed you. I mean, all of these things. And so it's funny because even the sheep here go, uh, when, when did this happen? I don't remember that happening. And this is, so I'm going to skip over that whole just and get to the, cut to the chase here. This is what the king, Jesus, says. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So when you see the hungry, when you see the naked, when you see the imprisoned, how you treat them is how you're treating Christ. And so as a result, will you allow God's people to become your people? Will you care for those as if they were Christ? There's a story that I I remember hearing, I don't know, 30 years ago that is baked deep into my soul, my understanding. It's the two Chinese uh, Christians in a hovel-like prison cell, dirt floor. It's the middle of winter. They're so cold. And they both have a thin blanket. And they're just shivering. And this one uh, prisoner has the thought, if that were Jesus next to me, 
would I give him my blanket? Now, the poor guy only has a thin blanket all his own, and if he gives it, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be all the more cold. But what if that was Jesus? What would you do? You have a thin blanket, that's all you have, but that's Jesus next to you, the one that gave up everything for you. What would you do? This Chinese man, Christian man, took the blanket from off his shoulder and put it around the, the prisoner next to him because if that was Jesus, he would gladly give up the little he had. That is the way that we as Christians need to allow the Spirit of God to work through us. So this is uh, from a biography written about uh, William and Catherine Booth. And it's a critical moment that's, again, if you've been around Ellerslie, you've heard me bring this up multiple times because it's, it's deeply embedded in my soul. One day, William took Bramwell, his son, and I want to say that his son was somewhere around 10 years old, okay, at this time. One day, William took Bramwell, his son, into an East End pub. Okay, now, uh, to understand even what that is in this case, it's not just a normal pub or bar. Okay, that's how we would understand it, a bar. This is the East End of London in the late 1800s. This is one of the worst places on earth. In all of history, one of the most decadent, most sin-ridden, most depraved environments on earth. And William Booth has the audacity to take his 10-year-old son there. Not just that, but then take him into the worst places in that bad place. It doesn't sound like good parenting, does it? And yet there's something about this parenting model that is so inspiring to me. And yet it still scares me. Don't get me wrong. He took him into the East End pub, which was crammed full of dirty, intoxicated creatures. Seeing the appalled look on his son's face. He just sort of looks down at his son. His son's like, what is this? He said gently, Bramwell, these are our people. The people I want you to live for. And Bramwell, his son, did live for them. Isn't that just an amazing thought? Now, that is a radical version of something right there, okay? That's a little beyond the way we probably were raised, a little out of our comfort zone, and yet when you hear it, you're sort of thinking, yeah, but something like that is important. Okay, Job 29. I love Job chapter 29, and just look at how Job is described. This is the one that God says, have you considered my servant Job? I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not, I searched out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Yeah, kind of like that. That's Jesus. That is the behavior of Christ in us. And so therefore, even if you're not a man, and here we're talking about the radical father, the radical father isn't me, it's God living in us. And so even if you're a girl, you can still have the radical father living in you, expressing his fatherhood, if you will, capital F, fatherhood, in and through you. This is his father's heart that we are to bear. So the making of the unusual, peculiar, strange, bizarre father. So if we're going to be changed by this God moving into us, what is the process? So I'm just going to walk you on the, uh, the biographical journey. The fear of failure and of not having enough. So I had two key fears in my life. And so I am newly married. I have a burden for Jesus Christ, and I want to go to the nations to share the gospel. This is very real. 
I had a heart for the weak, I had a heart for the least, but there were two key fears that were strangling me from doing certain things. And I'm gonna say the fear of failure. I was so afraid of diminishing the name of Jesus that I wouldn't live this well. So I was almost afraid of doing it at all because I, remember I grew up, this is what I said on Tuesday, I grew up in the age and generation of leadership failure moral compromise amongst the leaders of the day, and I did not want to go in that direction. God, how can I do this in a way that doesn't lead there? And then the other one, which is maybe something that some of you in here could uh, recognize and maybe relate to, I was afraid of not having enough. In other words, whether that's me not having enough in my own person to handle the challenges that are out there. I wanted to, but I felt so weak the other part was not having enough for my wife and a family. It's like, if I go in that direction, how am I going to make money? How am I going to do this? And so there's all sorts of questions that you have. And you see, because any of you that are mature in the faith know that that is a signal of immaturity. Because the first thing God could say back is, uh, <clears throat> hey, uh, what about me? In other words, remember the, the disciples in the boat with Jesus and the storm is hitting and the waves are crashing in and the boat is filling up with water? It says that their lives were in jeopardy. So it must have been pretty serious. And these are fishermen. They're used to being on the water and in boats. So if they are concerned and fearful, it must have been pretty bad. And Jesus is sleeping. And they were panicking. Now, what could God say to those panicking fishermen in that situation? Uh, don't you know who's in the boat with you? And that's the same for every single one of us. I don't care how difficult your situation could be now or in the future. Who's in the boat with you? The one who calms winds and waves. And once you know that, it settles the waters in your soul. However, we need to grow up in that. We need to learn that. You see, when you're growing up and you're in a house, your parents are sort of responsible for you know, having that sort of confidence, and you've never really had to. But when you step out on your own and you get married, suddenly you're like, whoa, I don't want to set up my life for not having enough. I don't want to put my wife in a bad situation. So this was, in a sense, a paralyzing thing. So when I start getting invited out to speak, and they're going to pay me to do it, and I can sell books and things like that, it's just, that, that makes more sense than to be the radical missionary that ministers to the poor. Poor don't have anything to give. Orphans don't have anything to give. Widows, I mean, the reason they're in that situation is because they don't have a provider for them. That's why you need to step in and oftentimes help them. So as a result, it's like if you want a good group of people to work with, work with people that have money. They can then give back to you and then it all works well. And the radical father is willing to bypass all that nonsense and say, but this is where my heart is beating. Go to them. But God, they can't pay anything. Go to them. I'll take care of you. See, this isn't something that young Eric Ludy understood. I, oh, conceptually I may have, but I was scared, and that fear was holding me back. There was also something else that was holding me back, and I'm going to put it as simply as I can in this statement. I was lacking the father burden. And most of you in here have known me since I've had a father burden, so you don't know the Eric Ludy. It's sort of like you all know the loud Eric Ludy too. But I used to be more of a comedian when I would speak. If you ever hear any of my old recordings back in the day, like you go back to 1998, I think I have a recording that I shared here. Didn't I share something from 1998? It's like preparing for an amazing love story. Hello. It, I, I, I probably wasn't that bad, but it, that's the way it sounds like to me. Hello. 
my name's Eric Ludy. I mean, it's just like, oh, come on, be a man. And so there's different dimensions of my life. And one of them is I loved kids, but I didn't have a burden to, for kids. And so Leslie and I were married 10 years without any kids. And I was fine with that. I mean, I loved kids. Oh, God, if you ever bring us kids someday, you know, I'll love them. But it was like, yeah, a little intimidating to me. And I love being around them, maybe pinching their cheeks, tickling them a little, and then letting the parents take them, okay? And so, and the same is true for, like you could say, this is what happened to me for the orphan and the widow and the imprisoned and the, uh, the, the child about to be aborted. Whatever it is, there was a lack of God's care. So theoretically, I cared. You ever had that where you theoretically care? If someone says, does the unborn child in that woman's womb matter? Yes, it does, theoretically. However, practically, you're not moved to do something about it, to rescue it. And so that's what was missing. There was, there was something missing in my life, and it was the oomph to rescue, the oomph to do something about it. Because if it is my child, I would do something, right? It's not my child. And so as a result, I'm sort of passive in regards to it with right thinking about it. Hudson. What's it like, buddy, seeing your name pop up on the screen? Hudson, the beginnings of something very special. I still remember the moment when Leslie came around the corner. I was brushing my teeth, and I, I remember her seeing her just mysteriously in the background of the mirror. And uh, so I stop. I'm looking at her in the mirror, and she's holding something. It was a pregnancy test. And you know, this is after 10 years of marriage. <laughs> she's like, uh, I'm pregnant. Oh, okay. You know, I have my, you know, into the sink. I need to get out my toothpaste. I, okay, let's hold ourselves together here. And this changed my life. Everything about that, I still remember I was convinced that it was a girl. You know, my spiritual sense, this is a girl. This is a girl. Leslie was like, okay, I think it's a girl. Then we go to get an ultrasound because we were cheating. Leslie didn't really want to have to wait to find out if it was a girl. She wanted to find out. And they're like, well, it looks like you have a boy. Just like immediately. It's like, what? Hey, what happened to my girl? There was a girl in there. There must be twins. Look around in there. And they didn't find a girl. They just found a boy. And that was actually far more intimidating to me. You know why? Because my vision for manhood is so high. God, I'm, I don't know that I'm ready, ready for this. This is exactly what I needed. I needed that sense of dependence, and I needed to allow God's heart as a father to begin to work through me. And so Hudson changed my life. It's the beginnings of something very special in me. So a couple years after Hudson, we have a miscarriage, and it still ranks as one of the most traumatic things we ever walked through. If any of you have ever walked through a miscarriage or your parents have walked through a miscarriage, it's hard to describe what it's like, right? Because at first you're just thinking, okay, let's just move forward, it's, it's fine. But God wouldn't let me do that. There's a necessary grieving that is important because that is a real life. If one of my children died and I was just like, okay, that's fine, you would all say, something is wrong with you, oh Papa Ludi, and you'd be right because that is a real child. And so that's what God, be, it's because our child, you know, the one that miscarried, named Scout, who actually named it, it could go boy or girl, uh, and I don't have any confidence that I know which way after blowing it with Hudson, it's like I have no clue. So named Scout, uh, Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, that one girl, Scout, uh, and, uh, which is critical even in our life story. <clears throat> but little Scout was six weeks old, 
And when Little Scout passed away, my first instinct was to have a stiff upper lip and to just let's, let's show an example to the body of Christ of how you walk through this with you know, rejoicing and thanksgiving and we'll be, we'll be fine. And that there's something that was missing in that. There's nothing wrong with rejoicing and giving thanks in all things. That's not the problem. It's that you, that does not mean you do not grieve loss. That does not mean you don't care for this life. You don't mourn something. And so there was a missing piece and God so clearly arrested my attentions in this and basically said, Eric, I'm weeping. If you don't weep, there is no one on earth that weeps for that child. I want you to have my heart for that child. Was, I mean, that felt terrible, even having him needing to correct me on that point. It's like, oh, that's so obvious. However, here's what I also begin to think. As God began to work in us, I mean, less than I went through this, this deep pain, we, we accepted it, we, we mourned this, the loss of this child, but then something profound began to happen where I began to think how many other children have no one on this earth that is weeping for them. It was like this awakening moment. It's like, wait a minute. If I almost overlooked my own child that was lost in the womb, how many more children does God have a heart for and no one is shedding tears for them? It's like this wake-up moment. It's like, whoa, God, I'm almost scared to ask the question. Are there others that I should be weeping for? Because I already knew the answer. I mean, what do you think the answer is? <laughs> and that's what I begin to open myself up to. And this, is, this began one of the most important periods of our life. Uh, so there's a line in, Les and I were going through To Kill a Mockingbird at the time, which we go through usually about once a year. Uh, and Hudson's going through it right now. He loves it too. It's just a great book. And there's a scene, there's an unjust scene where a, an African-American man is, is falsely accused, but because of the prejudice in the South, he just has no hope. They, all the jury will go with the white man, even though the white man is just a bad guy and everyone knows he's lying, but they cannot vote in favor of a, of a black man. And so it's just, it's really hard to go through this story because you see the injustice, but that's what the author's showing you. It's showing you the, the dangers of prejudice. And so in this, in the balcony are these three kids that are watching it. So you're sort of watching this whole thing through the lens of these kids. And one of them, his name is Dill. And Dill, at a certain point, seeing the injustice, cannot hold himself together and he begins to sob. And everyone else is fine, you know, they're all adults, and they are, the kids aren't even supposed to be in there. And Dill can't handle this, and so he starts crying, and so someone has to take him outside into the, uh, I don't know, the courtyard. And so Dill's in the courtyard sobbing, and he's saying, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe no one is saying anything about it. And there's this, the, the town drunk, who, who wasn't drunk at the time, everyone thinks he's drunk, but that's part of the story. And he looks over at them and says, yep, it's only the children that still cry. And I remember that got me. It's only the children that still cry. That somehow when we become mature adults, we lose the heartbeat of God oftentimes. And here's little Dill that knows the injustice and knows that it deserves tears. This is not right. And God desires to shed tears. But we're his body. We're the ones that are supposed to shed them on his behalf. Depraved Indifference. I don't know if you guys have seen the, the video Depraved Indifference. It comes out, well, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. It's, it's, uh, and so I went to speak at a, 
a rally for pro-life. It was a pro-life rally out in Santa Barbara. And on the way there, I changed my message. I changed it to depraved indifference. That's what I actually changed the message to on the drive from the airport to Santa Barbara. And the message didn't go over well uh, at the thing. It was like there was a very uppity, sort of snooty crowd that I was talking to. There was a fundraiser, and I don't think they raised a lot of money thanks to my message. However, I was so moved by this message. It was like changing me. And so I came back home. I was talking with Mike and Chris Hahn from His Little Feet, and I was like, I think this is... This is the message. So it's funny that my first giving of it was such a disaster, and yet my burden didn't change. It's like, I don't care how they responded. I know that this is important. And so we, we actually got the audio from that event, and uh, Steve Rosen scored it, and I don't know who actually built the video. I know it was Annie, and then I think Josh helped with a bit of it. And that one video has changed so many countless lives. I mean, thousands of adoptions have come out of that video. I mean, thousands. I've met people all over the world that because of that video, because of that message, their heart was changed. And there's a, there's a well, I'll go through the story. I was on the phone with uh, a, a orphanage from Liberia. And Leslie and I, every day, Leslie would, she would look and study what was going on in the world to get God's heart. And I would come home that night and then she would read me something. And then we would both pray and allow God to give us his tears and his burden for these different things. And one day, she was studying Liberia. And so she had a contact with this orphan, and she says, I just, I set up a time for you to talk with her. I'm like, okay. And so I'm on the phone with this lady from Liberia, and she's saying, uh, Mr. Ludi, uh, we came over here X amount of years ago. We bought a house that could hold about 17 kids. And we decided that's the max we can take because if we're going to raise, you know, 17 kids here in Liberia, we, we can only fit 17 in here. By the end of the first week, we had 27. And now we have a crisis on our hands because we have so many kids that need help that are right outside our door and we have no ability to help them. It is so difficult for us down here. There's no one down here helping us. It's just us. And I mean, let me give you an illustration, Eric. On the side of the road today, when I was walking from her, there's a four-year-old boy sitting on the side of the road starving to death. He has nothing. He has no parents. He has nothing to do with no idea where he's at in the world. And there's no one to help him. And so I'm feeling the weight of this, okay? I'm hearing it. I'm moved by it. And then I get off the phone and I'm stirred, right? But then I go back to my normal work. And eventually, it's not that I forget about it. It's just that that's not my world. And so I, I, I'm working and that night I'm, when I'm sleeping, I suddenly just poof, pop awake. You ever had one of those moments? It just like popped away. And what am I seeing in my mind but that little boy on the side of the road? The same mental picture I had when she was telling me. It's like, it's just there. And I feel like God says, uh, <clears throat> what if that was Hudson? You know, Hudson was four years old at the time. What if that was Hudson? So any of you that are parents, you answer that. What if that's your child on the side of the road on a, across the world in a smelly village without parents, without food, starving to death? What are you going to do? I'll do whatever it takes. I will claw through a concrete wall to make sure I get to my child to help them. Why? Because I'm a father. So listen to this. This is God's response to me. In the middle of the night, Eric, that's my Hudson way you care about your son and the way you would sacrifice to get to him, that's the way I feel. But the way I get to my children on earth is through my body. 
I need my body to claw through that concrete wall. I need you to carry my burden. So, game changer moment for me once again. God is saying something to me. He's burdening me in a way to say, this matters to me, Eric. So we begin, Leslie and I, in this process, after the miscarriage, after God awakening us through all of this, we begin to be stirred to say, God, what do you want us to do? Okay, every day I'm coming home and Leslie's reading this stuff to me, which was just painfully miserable. And we're like, God, I don't know what to do. We're one life, or two lives, if you want to say it that way. We are two lives, and what can we do to change the trajectory of the earth? There's so many suffering people out there, so many poor, so many needy, so many orphans, so many widows, so many imprisoned, so many about to be aborted. What do you do? And we, it was an overwhelming sense, so we began to pray. And this, if you've ever heard the story of Leslie laying her hand on me and saying, God, make my man to pray like a man. That's, this is right when it was happening where my prayers went from being, I guess, girly uh, to manly. So, sorry, girls, uh, you can pray manly prayers too. The fervent praying begins. We had this one period where we were at a crisis where we had to know what we were gonna do. We have a platform. At that time, we did too, even before Ellerslie started, because this is before Ellerslie started. We had an international platform, and we had a lot of people following us. And it's like, God, how are we supposed to do this? And so we spent two weeks fasting and praying that we would know. And I remember at the end of the two weeks, Leslie, we were sitting, I still remember where we were, a very unromantic location. We were in a gas station. I just put it in gas and I sat down and, and she goes, I think it's orphans. I go, okay, uh, I, I agree. It was, uh, out of all the places, it has to be a gas station. I mean, come on, couldn't it have been at like the top of Trail Ridge Road or something and we stop on the side of the road and Leslie goes, I think it's orphans. It was something like that or maybe in a, you know, a dirty village in some uh, African uh, country you know, where it's just like, I think it's orphans. That would make more sense, but a gas station? So uh, at the end of those two weeks, we, Leslie has this idea that we're, there's an international adoption agency in Berthoud, Colorado, about 20 minutes away. And she says, I set up a, an appointment for us to go in and just talk with them. I'm thinking, what? Why would we go there? She goes, well, it's the closest international adoption agency, and I just want to hear what's going on. I felt sort of awkward about that because I, here was my mentality. Well, we're not adopting. I mean, we don't have money to adopt. That was my first thought. My second thought was, those places, I think they try and manipulate you. <laughs> this was my thought. It sounds terrible now. But I think they try, they try and stick pictures in front of you, and then they, it's like not spirit-led. It's like just emotional, and I don't want that. I want, the Holy Spirit has led us this far. I don't want to be manipulated by a picture. So I'm coming in like armed and dangerous. If they try and stick a picture in front of us, I'm going to go, oh, ha, no, no. And so uh, sure enough, they tried to stick some pictures in front of us. But uh, it, that's part of the humor of the story. So we go to this international adoption agency. They specialize in China and Korea. And they, you know, they basically said, look, our our waiting list is around uh, two years, uh, two and a half years, uh, three years, I think, for a, you know, a girl. Everyone wanted a girl, I guess. And I, I felt it was, even at the very beginning, when the lady's given us a shtick, if you know what that is, it's like a pre-programmed, pre-scripted statement about what they do and how you can be involved. They had a hundred-person waiting list to help these kids. I'm thinking, this isn't where we should be. Because I want to go where there's the greatest need. And obviously, there's no need here, right? And everyone's just sort of waiting. And Leslie asks the, fa I'm ready to leave. And Leslie asks the question that changes, again, our life. Do you have any other children? The lady looks at us and goes, well, yeah, we have waiting children. 
And Leslie goes, what's a waiting child? Well, those are the children that the other people have passed over. Those are the ones that usually have medical issues or they're older. But they have specific needs and they have window, a window of time in which they can be adopted. And if not, they'll be institutionalized for the rest of their life. So this lady says, oh, by the way, there's, uh, as an example, there is a five-week-old girl that doesn't have any fingers and it's a club foot that uh, is a waiting child. I could show you her picture. I'm like, oh, no, no, we don't want to see a picture. That's, that's what I said. She goes, how about I just show you a picture of her hands? Just to give you an idea of what type of needs there are. Sounds harmless. Hands, I mean, that can't do any manipulation. Well, that picture of Harper's hands, I mean, it altered my, my life, my heart, everything about it. If you've ever, I don't know if you've ever seen Harper's hands, that little picture of when she was eight days old. Little th- I mean, they're the cutest, most precious things, and that's the reason why she's in our life is because of those little hands. And... The whole way home, I, I, got out. I just wanted to get out of there because I was choking up and I didn't want to f- cry in front of this lady that, you know, I didn't know her very well. And uh, so I'm in the, in the car and Leslie thought that I was just sort of like, let's get out of here. I don't want to talk about this. No, 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 no. But I was like, yes, 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 yes. And I'm scared to death of that. Yes, yes, yes. It's like, I know that that is what we're supposed to do. I know that that's our daughter. And Leslie does too, but I could not. I, I couldn't talk. The whole trip home... All I did was cry. Leslie's like, she was thinking I was playing the, the stoic over on the side. So she finally looks over at me, and I have tears streaming down my face. I just couldn't talk. It was so deep in me. It's like, I know when the Spirit of God is speaking to me. I just didn't expect it. I mean, I had no concept. I mean, the night before, that's what it says on the screen. The night before, I was like saying, okay, well, we don't have money, and don't let them show us any pictures. And now we had this. Little girl, it's like, that's our little girl, and she's in Korea. We need to get her home. And it was a small fortune to help a waiting child. It's like, you've got to be kidding. And we had to have half of it within two weeks. There's a tremendous amount of money. And God supplied every dime of it. We didn't actually pay one dime. Every dime of her entire adoption was supplied. It was an incredible story that I can't go into now. But the visit, that's what I just told you. The due date, you know that we had that miscarriage and then we began this praying, God's awakening our heart. You know when Harper actually came home was basically the same due date as Scout. And so what God did in the loss of that life, he turned what the enemy meant for evil into a profound transformation of our lives. The orphan beds, Hudson began to awaken to what orphans were. Miss Annie uh, Weshi came back uh, from Haiti and she had taken all these pictures down there, because that's what she was doing. She was actually helping an adoption agency take picture of the, take pictures of the kids so that people could help them. And so she came back, and she was showing us some of the pictures, and Hudson says, what's an orphan? And I was like, well, we told him an orphan is, is a child that uh, doesn't have uh, parents to protect and to provide, and so they're vulnerable, and they need someone to help them. And Hudson just couldn't believe that there was anyone out there that didn't have parents to help them and feed them. How would they get food? Well, they don't always get food. Like in Haiti, they oftentimes will eat what's called, uh, what is it, mud cakes, mud cookies? I forgot what you guys, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but they're actually just compacted mud baked in the sun. And it's to fool 
the body into thinking it is receiving food, but it's mud. And that's what a lot of children down there will eat. Could you imagine what that would do to your body if you were eating mud as your main sustenance? Eventually, you have problems. And so, yes, for the moment, it may make you feel like you're full, but uh, it's actually going to create great drama in your life. So Hudson was just overwhelmed with concern. And so he wanted to adopt 20. 20 kids from Haiti, uh, buddy. Uh, and we're trying to think, you don't want to disturb a child when they have that type of desire. You want to say, yeah, that's a good desire, but uh, you know how impossible that is? That's what you want to say. As the adult in the picture, you're like, okay, you can't do that. Uh, first of all, it would cost a small fortune. Secondly, they don't allow that to happen. And I'm sure we could come up with third, fourth, and fifth. Leslie's grand, grand reason was we don't have room. Okay, Hudson, we wouldn't have any place to put 20 kids in this house. And so Hudson, to prove her wrong, went upstairs and made all these little beds, little blankets with uh, his best stuffed animals and pillows. So we had all, he didn't count to 20 very well uh, back at that age, which I think he was like four. But so it wasn't 20, but he probably had 10 strewn around. And he came down and got us and took us back up. And he says, see, we have room for him. He had taken the, the, the lion's share of the blow to his own room. He had about five on the floor. So he was willing to sacrifice uh, personally. And you know what's interesting is in his very room, that room that he was in is Donaldson Hahn from Haiti uh, lives in that room. Uh, isn't that a, just a, a fascinating thought? Uh, the Hans bought our house, and that's actually a little Haitian boy that now lives in Hudson's old room. Opening up our home, the predecided, yes, Lord. So it's a hard thing. But we came to God, and we said, God, our home is open. If you want to use it, because Hudson's reasoning was, if I, he wanted to give them his mommy and daddy. He's like, well, what they need is a mommy and daddy. I have a perfectly fine mommy and daddy. How about... I give my mommy and daddy to them, and they wouldn't be orphans anymore. It's actually quite profound, but a little scary for mommy and daddy. And so our, our answer was yes. Okay, God, that's our answer. You know that we have said yes to, I think, six other adoptions that didn't end up happening, which is quite scary uh, when I ponder it, <laughs> God knows, because it's been an extreme challenge for us. It is. It just is. It's a big challenge. Uh, adoption is a big deal. But we've said yes to like six other children that ended up not, it, it ended up falling through. Lillian Reese, who I'm sure all of you know, about as cute as they uh, can be, we found out about Lillian Reese when they were just born. And it was actually a phone call to us. In each of our situations, it wasn't necessarily that we went out to find some, a child to adopt. In each situation, the situation came to us in a very odd and unique way. And with Lillian Reese, we were actually asked, would we consider adopting these two children? They're not brother and sister biologically. I mean, they are now that they're both adopted as Ludies. They're brothers and sisters. But they're not related. They just both happen to be born right at the same time and in the same place in Haiti. And both of them were having extreme health crises. We got these pictures of them uh, withering up, and they weren't looking too good, may not make it. And so in three days, Annie Weshi got on a plane and went down there, and she spent 29 months down there in Haiti taking care of Lillian Reese. And it's quite a story, which this weekend, if you come to the Set Apart uh, conference, Annie, I think, is going to share uh, that story. Is that correct, uh, Sarah? She's gonna, as part of what she's going to share... This weekend? Okay. Yeah, you're about as confident as I am. I know she's sharing something around that. 
so that adoption, like I've, we've gone through three different adoptions. We have four adopted kids, but this was one adoption of two kids. It was so bad, the, the adoption process, so corrupt, so evil, what we ran into, that, I mean, there were weeks where Leslie couldn't even eat. It was so hard because her mother's heart is attached to these kids, but her kids are vulnerable and their lives are hanging in the balance. I mean, it was so difficult. Corruption, deceit, forgeries, bribes, threats. Uh, we had uh, death threats. I could, should put death threats. That would make it stand out even more. And extreme heartache. I mean, it was extreme. And, and there were so many moments when it seemed like it couldn't even happen. It was impossible. And our family... I mean, Hudson was one of the leads in saying, let's keep praying, let's keep praying, let's see God do this. But we saw God prove faithful. But what does that do to a father heart? It tests it, it stretches it. It's all those types of things that for every one of you, you could say, well, how about we don't do that? How about we don't say yes to that because you could end up with this? I mean, look at that list. Who would ever sign up and say, I'd like some of that in my life? And yet... I've had it in my life because I've said yes, and yet look at Reese and Lily and you tell me, is it worth it? So I could avoid that, what's on the screen right now, that great list, and not have Reese and Lily, or I could have Reese and Lily and also have that. Are you following me? This is what the father is willing to go through. This is the radical father thing that I'm bringing up, is the willingness to have discomfort in our life to see God do his thing. How do you love as a father? Is it in my pockets? Do I have what it takes to do all this? No, and neither do you. This comes from heaven. But if you ask for it, he'll give you his burden. The altar of Molech, at a certain time in that, uh, the adoption with Reese and Lily, I remember having the distinct thought, if we were to walk away from this adoption, my life would be a lot easier. I mean, it was so hard. It had cost us so much money. Emotionally, I mean, everything about it was hard. And if I would just let go of Reese and Lily my life would be easier. So the reason I put altar of Molech, the Molech, see if I can say this without sounding weird, Molech is a false god, and he would help you with your harvest. And if you would take your child, usually a firstborn, and sacrifice it to him, you would have blessing, and your fields would produce great harvest. You know how many people have done that throughout history? And given up children so that they could have ease and comfort okay do you understand how bad that is so it's interesting can't you see the devil saying give up Reese and Lily so that you could have what peace ease so you tell me as the church of Jesus Christ which way should we go should we be willing to suffer for these children or should we seek our own ease and comfort and fields of uh of bounty you obviously know how I chose in that situation. Through pain, a father's heart is cultivated. Through pain, the father's heart in you will be cultivated. The picture of Hudson staying in the gap for Harper, I had this one thought, I remember I started crying when I thought of it, is that Harper was vulnerable in a situation, but what am I training up Hudson to do but to stand up and to even take a bullet for Harper? And I remember even just having the thought and starting to cry and recognizing Am I willing to give up Hudson to see Harper's spirit? Am I, what am I training my children for? To give up their lives. It's like a strange thought. So it's like I've suffered to see them come into this world, to see them protected, but then I also need to be willing to let them go to Christ so that they can suffer the same way that I'm willing to suffer. The picture of my kids heading out into all the world to preach the gospel. 
Sort of a scary thought. Because when you go into all this world to preach the gospel, you could die. And so as a father, I understand it, at least at a beginning degree, when it says he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's like you love these kids, but then are you willing to give them up? That's a radical father who's saying, go. Go where God is calling you to go. Speak the word of truth. But dad, I may not come back. I know. I know. But go. The picture of Harper heading into North Korea. It's, it's just a thought that goes through my head every now and then. It's like, it's easier. It's not very easy for a white guy like Eric to go into North Korea. North Korea is one of the hardest places on earth. It's one of the most closed places on earth, if not the most closed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, imagine if Harper came to me one day and said, Daddy, I have a burden for North Korea. Even though that's possibly one of the greatest father fears you could ever have is like, no, please don't have a burden for North Korea. But guess what? She's more built for North Korea than maybe anyone that you know and I know, right? I mean, this, she could be. Am I willing to allow my little girl to be called to North Korea? That's the test of the radical father. God's people are my people. Hudson, Harper, Kipling, Avonlea, Lily, and Reese, these are our people. Remember uh, William Booth? These are our people, the people I want you to live for. That's a quote from Daddy Ludi. The Ludi tradition. So we have a Ludi tradition. Uh, I'll, I'll be sitting there brushing my teeth or something, uh, getting ready for bed, and I'll say, less than I do this all the time. Remember, and we'll mention one of the kids, because they did something funny that day or just like a facial expression or an overreaction. And we'll, we'll bring it up, because when they're doing it, you have to be serious. You have to discipline. But then later, you can chuckle at it. And so... Uh, we'll, we'll say, like, remember Reesey Boy, remember Lils, remember Abby Rosie, remember W. Deuster, remember Harper Grace, remember B. Hudson is B. Uh, that's his nickname. And so they do something humorous. They do something cute. Hudson doesn't do as many cute things anymore. Buddy, you should do more cute things. Uh, and, but we cherish. It's a way of showing our affection and less than our constantly reminding each other about the preciousness of our kids. But just think how many kids have no one to cherish their preciousness. So the Ludi tradition expanded. Just think about this. This is so amazing. If we were to begin to inculcate, because you don't need to have kids to begin to practice the radical fatherhood of God. Remember Cordero, that little seven-year-old Down syndrome boy in Mexico City begging on the streets? Who's ever thinking about Cordero? Does anyone on earth think about Cordero when they're brushing their teeth? Does anyone bring him up because he's on God's heart? Remember Zella, that six-year-old little girl in Guatemala standing on the slave block being sold to those brutish men? Is anyone thinking about Zella? Remember Katakechi, that eight-year-old boy in Uganda today that was forced at gunpoint to kill his mother and sister and then enslaved as a child soldier in the LRA? Does anyone care about Katakechi? Remember Emily, that little unborn baby sucking her thumb and kicking inside that little 15-year-old girl's womb scheduled for execution at the hands of an abortionist tomorrow at 2 p.m.? Does anyone care about Emily? You see what happens when you allow God's Father's heart to awaken within you? You can't be normal anymore. You can't live as everyone else out there lives. The invitation of the cross. This is what I read with a slight alteration. I read this on Tuesday, but I want you to listen afresh with some slight alterations. Men wanted for hazardous journey to embrace inconvenience. Death to self, relinquishment of all control, utter humbling of the inner man are prerequisites to the journey. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and extreme heartache. Life can never go back to the way it was. But the benefits are too great to calculate. 
Welcome to God's version of carrying the Father heart. So that's the vision that I've caught. And this message is extremely beneficial to me as well. This is something we need to constantly be tilling in our soul. I want to just set before you guys that simple question. Are you willing to catch that same burden? Are you willing to allow God's Father burden to be your burden? Are you willing to think about Katakechi, Cordero, Emily, Zella? Are you willing to increase that range in which God says, I want you to care for them as if they are your own? Let's pray. Father, only you can do this work inside of us. It's not a work of guilt. It's a work of your Holy Spirit and love. Lord, and I pray that you would do that. Whatever the outlet would be, if it's merely prayer, if it's some other way that we are supposed to activate this burden, I pray that you would lead us in it for your glory, honor, and praise. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.